0: One of the challenges in doing a series like this has been trying not to get mired down in the theoretical issues surrounding the history of pre-modern same-sex love. Specifically, there were a lot of figures from medieval and early modern Europe I could talk about, but I can't say for sure if they were actually queer. And there is a lot of debate about whether or not we can even talk about sexual orientations before the 19th century. Oh, absolutely not. Case in point, Emperor Basil I... Of the Eastern Roman Empire, probably better known as the Byzantine Empire, even though the people who lived there still thought of themselves as Romans. Now, I really should start off with a series of disclaimers. First, honestly, you shouldn't be relying on some guy on YouTube as your definitive source on history. I mean, I'm not even peer reviewed. And no commenters rightfully attacking my awful pronunciation of names don't count. That said, while I can't deny I've made mistakes in the past and will make more mistakes in the future, I do try to be careful with the sources for the episodes I do. That's kind of why I put off doing this episode for so long, even though I find the story behind it so fascinating. On top of the usual problems that come with speculating about the sex life of a historical figure who lived in a time when a same-sex relationship could get you killed, The story of Basil I is horribly convoluted. There are no surviving detailed sources about him that were not written almost a century after his death, and there are valid reasons to be skeptical of at least some of the details they share. Also, any discussion of Basil and his sexuality has to acknowledge at least some, dare I say it, theory. Now, normally I try not to do any shop talk with these videos. One of these days I might do a special episode of Before Stonewall that's all about the debates over the history of homosexuality, even though I got burnt out on all that stuff in grad school, possibly for good. But against my better judgment, I feel like I have to give a quick crash course for the sake of this material. Back in the 1990s, when the history of sexuality really got started as a field, academics studying LGBT history were technically split into two camps. The essentialists, who believed that the idea of homosexuality existed across times and cultures, even if the term only went back to the 19th century West. And the social constructionists, who argued that the very idea of sexual orientation didn't emerge until some point in European history as a result of very specific cultural, social, and even political forces. Of course, the debate was actually more complex and nuanced than that on both sides. Since then, I think the majority of historians who specialize in the history of sex come down somewhere in between, in a moderate constructionist slash quasi-essentialist camp, for lack of a better phrase. Basically the argument is that ideas about sexuality are shaped by culture and society, but the idea that there is a group of people who exclusively desire the same sex has existed long before the term homosexual was first coined, and it existed in different ways across many different societies and time periods. But there's still what I call the extreme constructionist position, which I don't think you'll see among many historians anymore but you'll definitely come across it in literary and culture studies and queer theory. The theorist David Halperin has probably done the most to lay out this theory, basically arguing that there was no such thing as sexual identities before the 19th century. The journalist Brandon Ambrosino has become a vocal advocate of this theory, even getting to write an article for the BBC on how the history of homosexuality doesn't really have a history before the 1800s. So, uh, yes, the BBC got a journalist and a grad student in theology to write about a complex and controversial historical topic, but not an actual historian. Oh my god, why the hell do I bother? Anyway, if you've been paying attention to my videos, you can likely guess that I fall into the moderate constructionist camp. In fact, one of the reasons I started this series was to try to do my own small part in very small part, to spread the word, especially because somehow the extreme constructionist position has gotten a foothold in pop culture. I'll link to an article I wrote for the outline about that in the description. I'll save you from me going on any more of a tangent, but let me just say that I just don't think the historical evidence supports extreme constructionism, which is likely why the people who still promote it aren't actually, historians. There's even an argument that the whole thing is based on a misreading of the philosopher Michel Foucault. I'll also link to that article in the description. Okay, but what did all of that have to do with Basil? Well, Basil is not just a possible example of a medieval gay or bisexual person, but of someone who was in a same-sex marriage, at least if you believe the historian John Boswell. So with that... Let's get into the extremely weird and sketchy early career of Basil the Macedonian, before he became the Byzantine emperor and the founder of the last great dynasty the empire would ever see. All the sources agree that Basil came to Constantinople from the province of Macedon with nothing but a few basic supplies to his name and a dream of making it in the big city. This rags-to-imperial-glory story is not all that unusual in the entire history of the Roman Empire. The great Byzantine Emperor Justinian and his uncle Justin, who also became an emperor, came to Constantinople from rural poverty to find well-paying work, and that's just one of numerous other examples. In fact, in an interview with the Wonderful History of Byzantium podcast, historian Anthony Cadellus said it was easier to come from the lowest rungs of society and become emperor than it is to grow up poor in the contemporary United States and become president. Yeah, as an American, I can see that. Basil did have one advantage money couldn't buy. He was handsome and buff, something else all the sources agree on. Also, he was apparently an excellent wrestler, something that was immortalized in art. While he was sleeping on the streets, he was taken in by a church officer, or, according to other sources, an abbot, named Nicholas, who gave him lodging and bathed him. According to one of the two main sources about Basil, Leo Grammaticus, Nicholas not only did that, but quote, kept him as his housemate and companion, and was united with him in a church ceremony. I'll go into more detail later, but if you believe Boswell, it was a same-sex marriage. If instead you believe the historian Claudia Rapp, it was a ceremony meant to formalize a brotherly bond. What's more, it wasn't even the only time Basil was bound to someone in that ritual. With Nicholas's help, Basil started working for a powerful government magistrate named Theophilus, who liked to be surrounded by, quote, good-looking, well-built men. While on an errand for him, Basil met a rich Greek widow named Danellus. Our other main source, Siophones Continuatus, added the details that he made a, quote, bond of spiritual union with Danellus's son, John. On their own, these details would otherwise just be a weird little footnote. They would be if not for how Basil managed to get himself promoted to emperor. See, when Basil was just a six-packed Instagram model slumming on the streets of Constantinople, the emperor was Michael III, who was given the not-too-flattering sobriquet of the drunkard. Once through his connections with courtiers like Theophilus, Basil was given a job overseeing the imperial stables. He caught Michael III's eye. In what way? Well, Basil was promoted to becoming the official companion of the Emperor's bedchamber. While this didn't literally mean that he got into bed with the Emperor, the post was traditionally held by eunuchs, something Basil very much wasn't. Not only that, but Michael III entrusted Basil with a very delicate and important operation, the murder of his uncle and co-emperor Bardas, then Michael the appointed Basil co-emperor in his place, and made some very weird domestic rearrangements. Please bear with me. Michael the made Basil divorce his wife Maria, and remarry Michael's own mistress Eudokia. Eudokia would go on to become the mother of the boy who would become Emperor Leo the and apparently no one was sure if Leo was Michael's son or Basil's son. Besides being a bit of a soap opera-esque embarrassment, this would cause political problems down the road later on, as you might imagine, and it might have been a key reason why at one point Leo apparently plotted to assassinate Basil. Also, on a side note, this reminds me of the trial of the Earl of Castlehaven for sodomy in early 17th century England. One of the accusations made against the Earl was that he wanted his male lover to impregnate his wife so he could make his lover's son heir. I'm not saying the Earl knew about this, he probably didn't even know Michael Dessert existed. But it is an odd echo in the history of sexuality, I couldn't resist pointing out. And also, it's frankly one hell of a kink. Tragically, the relationship between Michael Dessert and Basil I came to a tragic end whatever the nature of that relationship was. Michael instead started paying attention to a sailor named Bascolinus and began to make jibes that he would replace Basil as co-emperor with his brand new favorite. One September night in 867, Basil bent the lock to the emperor's bedroom with his bare hands. After a night of heavy feasting and drinking, Michael passed out in his bed, and he was still asleep when he was killed by Basil's cousin, as a land. So, yes, the thrust of the story is that the emperor was murdered by his gay lover, who then took over his empire. Again, I normally don't do this much of a deep dive, but for this one case, let's look at the sources. First, I should not admit that even people inclined to agree with him overall have disputed John Boswell's argument That these brotherly unions were actually same-sex marriages acknowledged by early christian churches at the same time people who reject this view sometimes go to the other extreme and do what sadly many historians still do take issue with any theory that two people of the same sex were involved romantically and sexually that doesn't have explicit evidence even if the time period in question was one of persecution I agree with Boswell's critics that these ceremonies were just meant to formalize spiritual and brotherly unions. However, it is definitely within the realm of possibility that more than a few people used this ritual as a cover for their own romantic relationships. The fact that Christian authorities tended not to approve of the ceremony, even when they allowed it, suggests as much. This brings us to the question... What exactly was going on with Basil and his own brotherly unions? The short answer is, we really can't know. As tempting as the idea that Basil pimped himself out to some widow's son may be, the only source that mentions it is Theophanes Continuatus. And it's really unlikely that the author of the Chronicle would have been trying to imply that Basil and John were lovers who entered a marriage because that part of the chronicle was sponsored by the Macedonian dynasty, the dynasty that Basil I just happened to establish. As for Basil's relationship with the church keeper Nicholas, well, Sean Tuffer in his essay, Michael III and Basil I, Just Good Friends? Emphasis on the question mark. Notes that this relationship was not even brought up in theophanes Continuatus. The account we do have from Leo Grammaticus, who, I should remind you, was writing in medieval Greek, puts a strange emphasis on the fact that when Nicholas found Basil on the streets, Basil only had a knapsack and staff, which just happened to be a double entendre in ancient Greek literature. In other words, Leo Grammaticus seems to have intended to imply that Nicholas took in Basil because of what was in between his legs. Then there is the case of Michael III and Basil and the nature of their relationship. Of course, there is a very powerful political motive to make Michael III look as bad as possible. The worse he looks, the more legitimate Basil's coup appears. But it's still interesting that Theophanes Continuatus specifically singles out Michael as violating natural law, this coincides with what other sources say about the immorality of Michael III's court, the sort of immorality that the chronicler of Diophanes Continuatus tries to disassociate Basil from. Also, a contemporary of Basil and Michael III, George de Monk, who wrote a history of the world that went up to his own times, described Michael's feelings for Basil using the word pofos. Now, as you might know if you've done any Classical or New Testament studies, Ancient Greek is a very nuanced and specific language, especially compared to Latin. Posos could be translated into English as desire or love, but in Ancient Greek it could specifically mean sexual longing. Early Christian Greek texts even used it to describe the sexual desire, that could exist between a wife and her husband. It's also telling that Zeofani's continuatus, as Tuffer points out, downplays Basil's role in Michael III's reign. Yes, Michael raised him up, but it turned out that Michael had become so evil and insane that Basil just had to kill him for the sake of the Empire. However, other sources provide more detail that get conveniently ignored, like Michael threatening to replace Basil with a rival. Finally, all the sources agree about why Michael and the others were drawn to Basil. Even a non-Greek like the Italian Lucrend of Cremona, writing two generations later, recorded that Michael promoted Basil because he was, quote, exceptionally comely. Now, of course, we could just be, like some critics say, projecting our own nasty, sexualized, modern view of the world, on what was just a perfectly chaste series of manly friendships that Basil just happened to have that had nothing to do with all the people pointing out how beautifully, perfectly manly he was. In fact, if you go to Basil's Wikipedia page, you'll see that people have carefully scrubbed the article of even the slightest reference to there being any kind of debate over Basil's sexuality. And to be fair, you can see some of the reasoning behind this view. Basil I founded a new dynasty, and was one of the most successful emperors in Byzantine history, helping give the empire a new life after a long period of decline. Why would these sources imply he's a sodomite? On the other hand, though, maybe the extreme constructionists are right, and the idea that Basil, or even Michael, would have had any inclination toward members of the same sex would have been foreign to these writers, making the whole thing less significant historically than we assume because it would have been alright as long as Basil was understood to be the dominant partner in bed or whatever. Well, what people, even historians, sometimes get wrong about controversies like this is that they don't really take into account what it would mean to write about same-sex desire in a time like the Middle Ages especially when it involves someone or the ancestor of someone who could have you dragged out of your monastery and killed on the streets. At the same time, if you were a chronicler, you couldn't quite just lie your way out of the situation and just give pure propaganda. Think of how small the world of the educated in medieval Europe was, and how much staying power a good scandalous story has. The very same people who likely could and would read your chronicle would have already heard about what was going on in the imperial court with the alcoholic emperor and his hunky boyfriend. Even a foreigner like Ludprand of Cremona apparently got the basic gist of it long after the fact. So you would expect that these writers can't flat out say what was going on besides maybe vague accusations of immorality and decadence and violating natural law. Or they would try to blur the details by saying, no, actually Basil hated the sodomite tyrant as much as anyone else, and those other relationships he was in were perfectly respectable spiritual brotherly unions. Or they would give themselves plausible deniability by using sexual innuendo, or vague language, or just dwelling on details like how attractive other men found this person. And, well, that's exactly what we get.